Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. Well, friends, today we're going to be looking at our next uh, movement in the Sermon on the Mount, and Brittany has prepared this beautiful picture. The title today, our topic, is Salt and Light. And this is a well-traversed passage. I felt like Brittany's picture is perfect in that it displays the beauty of creation. We've just finished Earth Day, was this week. We celebrated that together. And... um, This displaying the light as it cascades across the ocean and the 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 crashing of the waves against the shore and the idea of that light and salt moving together. Let's move right into our text for this morning, which is Matthew 5, 13 through 15. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste... How can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works And give glory to your Father in heaven. This is so good. God, be with us as we go through this this morning. Allow your Holy Spirit to illuminate for us freshly from the text. We thank you for, uh, we thank you that we don't come to this text alone, that we come to this text guided by the Holy Spirit into truth, and that as we're guided into truth, we recognize that Jesus is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and we recognize that we are being guided in the way of Jesus. We thank you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This morning, this is our first movement out of the Beatitudes. This is, within the text, the first uh, uh, portion following the Beatitudes. And as we may remember, the Beatitudes are not a to-do list, but first and foremost, an announcement about how the kingdom of God works. It is intended to jar us out of our earn-it-to-keep-it moralism into a place where we see God's posture towards the world and invites us to see the world through the same kingdom lens. So it should jar us out of the meritocracy of our earn-it-to-keep-it tit-for-tat moralism, and allow us to see the way the kingdom of God already works and then invite us to participate in that way. From this framework, Jesus moves from the Beatitudes to speaking about what the kingdom of God will produce in the world. So we need to know that that's what's happening. We're moving from Jesus explaining the announcement of how the kingdom of God works 
and an invitation to see the world that same way to now this idea about how, excuse me, what rather the kingdom of God will produce in the world. So the first thing to embrace about salt and light is that he's not saying that those who live this way are going to heaven. He is saying that they will be gifts for the earth. The idea of salt and light is not about our um, uh, afterlife issues in any way. It's about what is uh, what is our purpose? What is our role here as the kingdom of God is established upon the earth? We think of Jesus' teaching as oftentimes as prescriptions for having blessings in our life and getting to heaven. Instead, the Sermon on the Mount is a set of descriptions of a free life. This is not a prescription about how to get God's blessing now and to go to heaven, but a description about what it looks like to live freely. The way Jesus, excuse me, the way of Jesus is not prescriptive, but descriptive for us. When you can weep, when you can identify with the little ones, when you can make peace, when you can be persecuted and still joyful, this is the kingdom. He is saying, as it were, this is what holiness actually looks like. This is what wholeness and freedom look like. When you act this way, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is already among you. I I love um, what several scholars, I know Karl Barth said this, uh, several other scholars have said, essentially what Jesus was announcing was to live, for us to live like the kingdom of God was already fully present. And in this way, Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned about control, enforcement, or uniformity. His priority is proclamation, naming, and revealing. Can we process the amount of trust and faith God has in you? Think about what this might mean. That Jesus is not giving us a list, a to-do list, that is to be enforced in uniform fashion. Jesus is clarifying that the kingdom of God is not about control or gaining control, but rather about powerlessness and losing it. And in that way, God does not expect us to do something that God is not doing God's self. What God does first is let's go of control demonstrates hardwires into creation itself that God is not into authoritarianism. God is not into manipulation. God is not into power games. But God's power is always lifting up. God's power is in humbling God's self in some way in uh, uh, demonstrating that God has given all of God's self to you. And I know that most of us have spent our lives being told that we are to have trust and faith in God. But the beauty is, since the foundation of the world, God has chosen to have faith and trust in you. 
God is not going to do something. God is not going to ask something of our character that God doesn't first demonstrate. So within this, God does not demand or manipulate. God does not coerce or act as an overlord, giving us good marks and bad marks, but lovingly invites us to participate in this self-giving, gratuitous love. God is welcoming us within this kingdom to rest into perfect givenness, which is the permanent state and posture of God towards everything and everyone all the time. I have to say that again. If there's a tweet quote, that's it. I don't do tweet quotes, but this would be it. God is welcoming us to rest into perfect givenness, which is the permanent state of God toward everyone and everything all the time. Salt in this parable is unique. And in reality, in our culture, we need to give a little bit of context because salt is so common, so easy to obtain, and so inexpensive that we have forgotten that from the beginning of civilization until about 100 years ago, salt was one of the most important and sought-after commodities in human history. For thousands of years, salt represented wealth. Salt was a major political factor. The city of Rome was founded where it is because of its close proximity to the salt works of the day. Roman soldiers were sometimes even paid in salt. And a commander might, if they were speaking of a value of a soldier, somebody that was really good, they would say that that soldier was worth their salt. And interestingly enough, that is pervades into the idea within our culture, our English word salacious is from the idea of salt. It would, uh, it would come in because Romans uh, called a man in love solix, which meant they were in a salted state. So salt was very important to them. In fact, the, it was the first, uh, they believe, one of the first things ever traded in the ancient world. And all of our animals that are domesticated, cows, goats, dogs, were all domesticated with the process of salt. They would leave salt out for them to lick until they could get close enough to capture them. So salt was very prevalent in their culture, uh, consciousness in that culture. So Jesus then begins to speaking of light. So we have salt and now light. And I would like to suggest that light is not so much what you see, what you directly see, as that by which you see everything else. I need to say that again. Light is not so much what you directly see, but that by which you see everything else. This is important. What that means is that our job is, to, is not to be a light that others see in contrast to their darkness, but that we would be an illuminating factor that allows them to actually see. 
So we're not, we as being light in the invitation of Jesus, first of all, Jesus says, first, I am the light of the world. And then he turns and says, you are the light of the world. And what Jesus is doing is he's not inviting us to be a focal point or a contrast for someone to look at. He's inviting us to be an influence that allows people to see. When you think about it, the point of turning on a light is, is not to see the bulb, but to see the room that the bulb illuminates. So maybe our role is to be light so that the world can see God at work and everything else. So my job is not to be light in contrast to darkness. So people look at me who is, uh, let's say I am being light that day. Some days I'm probably not. But in that moment, they don't look at me and think, oh, well, isn't he lightful? No, they look around them and see God in all things because our light illuminates the environment that they're in. You don't turn on a light and then look at, to look at the bulb. You turn on a light to see the room well. So he says, you are salt and light. And actually, it's really interesting because in the Aramaic that Jesus would have been speaking, once again, Jesus was not speaking Greek and he was not speaking Hebrew. He was speaking Aramaic. And in Aramaic, what's interesting is that it would have been, I'm going to use a English slang to translate Aramaic. I'm breaking so many, there, are going to, there would be so many good biblical scholars offended by this idea. But I think you'll get the point. Jesus would have actually been saying, y'all are light. Not you, but the plural you. It's not individualistic. It's not that you are to be light. In fact, it's almost like we are each individually a beam of light, and a single beam of light is not a beam of light if it's not connected to the greater source, the greater output of the beam of light. And so within this, Jesus is saying, y'all are salt, y'all are light, you all in a plural sense. He's talking about the community the church, not individuals. He's talking about the body of Christ across the world. Creation itself is, is, is shouting and declaring the glory of God being light. And for those who never hear the gospel message, all they have to do is see the sunrise. Why? Because it's being light. All they have to do is look across the ocean. All they have to do is see the, the beautiful flowers that are springing as we come into this season. And this can't be overstated. The entire movement is that salt by itself is not a meal. And, and a single grain of salt doesn't flavor a meal. It takes several granules of salt in order to be effective in this way. And the whole thing is communal and about the greater body of Christ, which is always the entire world. The way we organize our common life together as people matters because it will reach out into our world and act as salt and light. Salt flavors food. It's not the main taste so much as it brings out the flavor that, are, that is already there within the meal. 
Light is not designed to stand in distinction to darkness, but to integrate and complement it so that the things around it can be seen. You don't put salt on salt. You just don't. And yet, I, many of us were taught as good Christians that you're to spend your time with other Christians. Because if you spent time with people who didn't think like, and not just Christians, let's just be real honest here. As a good Pentecostal, it wasn't just my, my job to convert a Buddhist. It was my job to convert a Baptist. Right? I mean, if we're real here, it wasn't just about people even within my own religion. It was people within my own, uh, uh, or outside of my religion, it was people within my own religion. It was my job to, to get the Presbyterians to speak in tongues so that they could really have the fullness of the gospel. And so within this, we end up, it, it narrows and closes down the groups that we're able to be with. So rather than salt being best put with meals, the definition of what salt you as salt can spend time with just gets narrower and narrower. So now Christians have to spend time with Christians, but then it has to be the particular version of Christianity that you're part of and the particular dogma and beliefs and doctrine of Christianity that you're part of. And that gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And what good is salt if it's only salting salt. The way we organize this matters. Jesus then moves on saying, if salt becomes tasteless, how can we salt the world with it? Jesus asks, the message, uh, excuse me, Jesus asks, if we are not uh, um, salting the world, how is the salt going to make an impact? That message seems true today. If Christians, Jesus' self-proclaimed followers, no longer follow the gospel, if we no longer believe in nonviolence and powerlessness and giving oneself to another and loving our neighbor as ourself, then who's going to convert us? What good is the gospel if it's not good news to everybody? What good is salt if it doesn't flavor the meal? We're supposed to be the leaven of the world. Yet if we no longer believe in the gospel, what hope do we have of offering anything to anyone? We're invited to carry and love what God loves. That's the great invitation of the gospel, to see and love what God sees and how God loves. I can't think of a more poignant verse for us at this moment. Rich Velodez said this week, evangelical Christianity in the United States is often characterized by a deep desire to have Christianity pervade our culture, but not have the way of Christ permeate our being. Oof. We're interested in making sure that Christianity pervades our culture, and our, um, the way that we vote, making sure that that apply, uh, aligns to some version of Christian ethic. But if it doesn't start with pervading the way we live, then all it becomes is it becomes some badge of honor, some plaque that we hang on the wall that says we're a Christian country, but full of people who aren't living in the way of Jesus.
This idea that we can bifurcate being Christ-like from being a Christian is a real source of grief for me. The challenge facing us as we work to become disciples of Jesus in the American context is that most of us have been thoroughly discipled into the rival religion of Americanism. And even worse, that we think that that is synonymous with Christianity. As Brian Zahn says, you cannot convert a system if that system has already converted you. This is, again, why the way of Jesus will always stand in stark contrast to any particular political party, class system, or tribalistic ethic. The way of Jesus is a politic. The way of Jesus is our ethic. It is a worldview and way of ordering life and community. And for this reason, Jesus says, you are light for the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Our job is to be a shining truth, to live the truth as best we can, and let it all fall where it may. The best criticism, St. Francis said, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. And little by little, as we do this, maybe we get converted too. As we love people better and better. As we try to practice the better. Rather than the church being known for what it's against, the church actually becomes known again for what it is for. And in the process of that, maybe we'll get converted too. So I think Jesus invites us into this very unique step, what it might mean for us to actually live the Beatitudes. He gives us this, this idea, this announcement of the way the kingdom of God works, invites us to see that way, and then says, if you will see that way, if you will weep with those who weep, if you will show mercy As God shows mercy, if we will become poor in spirit, if we will see that the kingdom of God is almost always going to be found in the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed, the abused, we can season the meal. We can become the light by which people see that God is always been with them, that God has always been loving them, caring for them, holding them, providing for them, because this is what God does. So we're going to move now into our communion time, our Eucharist. I'm going to invite Tosh to come back up. And I thought today that um, we might just, as we give the communion, we've been giving pronouncements to one another. Um, 
directives, as it were, that we might um, that we might first with the bread just give the pronouncement to the other that you are the salt of the earth and that you are the light of the world. So if you have your own um, sacraments, uh, your, the elements that you're going to use to take of the Eucharist with us, I invite you to take those. And I first pronounce that, announce that, state that over you. You are the salt of the earth. And you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And you are the light of the world. Well, thank you so much, friends, for being with us today. We pray that you are well. We pray that you are encouraged and that you feel the everlasting, eternal, loving arms of God wrapping around you, holding you, keeping you close. And that as John Wesley, I believe, stated, that as we take of the Eucharist, he said, serve the church, the body of Christ, until they learn that they are what they eat. We are all the body of Christ, and we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And we have the distinct pleasure, joy, delight, and invitation to flavor and illuminate. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.